Locked on NBA Thursday edition. David Locke along with Ben Golliver back together again. Thank you very much for Chad Ford for filling in last week. Thanks for the guys at Rejecting the Screen for letting us have some of their content. So hopefully you've enjoyed a little taste of other things. But nice to be back with my Washington Post buddy, Ben Golliver. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. I mean, you saw the scene that I think I've been teasing for weeks with Michael Jordan's just bitter hatred of Isaiah Thomas coming across, uh, you know, the iPad and everything else and all the memes going crazy in the last couple of days. So, you know, I don't know if we want to dig into our most hated people or if we want to you know, rehash the uh, the glorious moments from that uh, last dance documentary, but uh, it does feel like there's been a lot going on. I got an interesting question on a talk show this week where I was asked whether I thought that the, the hatred uh, between the Bulls and Pistons was really legit, legitimate or it's a little bit of guys back in the spotlight having fun. What's your thought? I think it's very legitimate, but I think it's also self-serving. You know, I think it, it works so well for Jordan to kind of uh, brush past the fact that he did lose three out of four times in the playoffs to the Pistons. And rather than being able to kind of beat them on the court, he got them the last time. And then he's just sort of buried their reputation for history by referring to them almost like, you know, thugs and, and poor losers by refusing to shake hands uh, and all the hard fouls and stuff that they endured. So I think he's won sort of the branding war. But at the same time, I think this actually serves the Pistons interest, too, because it's so natural for us as you know viewers or as fans to skip straight from the Celtics Lakers era right to Jordan and there is that inconvenient truth that the bridge between those two eras was the Pistons, who were an incredible team, deep, you know, all five positions covered, eight, nine, ten-man rotation, number one defense in the league, slowest pace in the league, but still, you know, really uh, above-average offenses with lots of star power led by Isaiah Thomas. And so the fact that they kind of get held up as the bullies or as the antagonists, I think it suits them well. I mean, look no farther than Bill Lambeer. I feel like he's having a great week, you know, back in the uh, back in the spotlight getting a few, uh, you know, disses in on the Bulls and and pumping himself up a little bit. So I I think it kind of works for all parties. You know, this is actually what I am liking the most about The Last Dance. I mean, The Last Dance is incredible. Don't misunderstand. You've already seen eight hours of it. Don't misunderstand that I am, like, gripped uh, for the two hours every night that it's on. But I also love that because there's no sports taking place right now, it lives for another five days. And we're getting all of <laughs> these different angles on it because of that fact. And that, to me, is actually making it a little bit better. You're talking about the Pistons getting it. I loved the whole Draymond Green angle of things, right? So the Warriors suddenly now with all of are suddenly revealing the inner truths of what would be their documentary uh, a little bit because they're looking back at the bulls. And some of those comments have been incredible. No, absolutely. It's like, I think that there's a little bit of envy, right? Like Draymond is such a great take artist, you know, like he loves to get into it with Charles Barkley, you know, probably our most prominent take artist there is, but I feel like Draymond's watching Jordan just kind of annihilate all of his rivals and he's getting jealous. And he's like, wait a minute, I got to get in on the action here. I got to have something to say. And I think it's very natural when you're looking at the end of that Bulls dynasty where um, everybody's pointing fingers at Kraus. Kraus is the bad guy. But we're all looking from the outside and saying, like, how did they screw this up? Why did they just take care of Pippen? Why didn't they just keep Phil Jackson on a long-term contract and keep running this thing back? These are the very same kinds of questions, I think, that the Golden State Warriors faced last summer, right, when Kevin Durant is deciding to team up with Kyrie Irving and DeAndre Jordan, of all people, leaving Golden State, a team that had been to five straight finals, won three titles, 
had a, an incredible core uh, of guys in place with Steph Curry, Draymond, and Clay Thompson, albeit some injury issues to consider as well. But this idea that Kevin Durant would turn his back on that group, just like uh, the Bulls imploded in 98, I think there's an awful lot of parallels. And I was actually surprised and, and somewhat impressed that Draymond would put a lot of the onus onto Kevin Durant and basically say, look, like we just never really had things right. He, he was the elephant in the room. That last year, he had one foot in and one foot out. We all kind of sensed he wanted to leave Golden State before he actually did. And it just is another reminder, like, you can be the best player in the sport like Kevin Durant was for a very brief window there last year during the playoffs and still not have nearly as much respect from your teammates as a guy like Jordan had from his teammates. I'm just listening to Draymond talk about KD and thinking, there will never, ever be a Bulls player who talks about Jordan like that. And, uh, you know, I think that's one contrast between these two eras where uh, you could have great basketball players right in the middle of it. Uh, but because of the, the way that, you know, Durant got to Golden State, in other words, it wasn't his show. Everything wasn't built around him. He never really had that Jordan level of uh, respect and fear factor uh, that Jordan was able to enjoy throughout his time in Chicago. I'm going to agree with you, but I'm going to quibble a little bit with a part of that take, if you don't mind. One is Please. I thought the most interesting. First of all, I covered Horace Grant after he left Chicago. So that wasn't a guy that was in love with Jordan when he got to Seattle. I think that's probably fair to say. Jordan wasn't in love with Horace either. He claims he was leaking to the media. Horace thought that was garbage. Like I was, I had all that when I was in Seattle and covering that team back in 98, 99, uh, 2000, whenever it was that Horace came. The other one, I thought the most reveal. I, I want to go back to Draymond too, but I thought the most revealing comment of the last dance episode was Will Perdue. I think it was talking about when Jordan cried after winning the first title and basically saying, we didn't know he had emotion in him. <laughs> we didn't know that he had any feelings at all. I thought that was about as that was, a, that was basically someone saying, this is the worst teammate I've ever been with in my life because he didn't treat us like humans. And it was incredible to see that he had human, human instincts. I know. The crazy thing is that Jordan probably takes that as a compliment, though, because that just means he was like that focused on winning, right? So it's a little bit different. Let, let me try to clarify what I meant with the, with the KD thing, right? It's almost like in Draymond's view of Golden State falling apart, Kevin Durant was the Jerry Krause figure, right? Like he was the one who was the destabilizing element. He's the one who's sort of being blamed or thrown under the bus for that group falling apart. And I actually think 20 to 30 years from now, people will look back on the Warriors and say, wait a minute, they had five Hall of Famers, if you count Iguodala, on the same group at the same time. And Durant willingly chose to leave for a Nets team that had no established track record of winning, that had to fire their coach within months. He's going to play with Kyrie Irving, one of the biggest live wires in the league, and DeAndre Jordan, a guy who's multiple years past you know, their prime. They're going to look at that decision and be like, what in the heck was he thinking? Um, how did it possibly get to that point? And I think that um, you know, no one's ever going to blame Jordan publicly for the Bulls' dissolution, even though if you look, I mean, his retirement uh, to go play baseball and then his second retirement were big factors in all of those decisions, right? Krause wanted to rebuild in part because – he sensed that you know, you know Jordan might be you know eyeing something else. Um, they were also looking ahead to the rebuilding effort. I do think that if Jordan had played things differently at multiple points of his career, um, you know maybe the the Bulls era would have actually gone in a different manner. If he hadn't retired, they could have won more titles. If he had 
you know, more strongly kind of said, hey, it's Krauss or me uh, in 1997. You know, they probably find a way to, to make that thing go on a little bit longer than it did. But I don't think anyone's ever going to blame Jordan for the state of the, the Bulls in the same way that it really felt like Draymond was almost blaming KD for the end of the Warriors. All right. Draymond has a really revealing comment on all of this, and we will continue with Ben Golliver, the Washington Post, and I will lead us off because Draymond revealed something, which I love. I almost feel like the Warriors revealed their documentary while it was happening on an angle of something that I had heard quite a bit around the league that I'd heard be talked about quite a bit around the league. And finally, uh, it turned out to be revealed uh, to be true. Today's show is brought to you in part by Postmates. From an early morning breakfast burrito to a 12-pack of beer or to ribs or to whatever, you can get whatever you need delivered whenever you want. And that's where Postmates come in. And now that delivery is free. For a limited time, Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days. To start your free deliveries, download the app and use the promo code Locked on NBA. That's right. No more trips to the store. No more late night food runs. I don't even have to worry about where to grab lunch anymore. And in this era right now, you can help the local restaurants and you can avoid a lot of contacts. So therefore, the code is locked on NBA for $100 of free delivery credit with no minimum purchase for your first seven days when you download the Postmates app. Go to Android or iOS. Find your favorites. Get anything you want delivered within an hour and use the promo code LOCKEDONNBA for $100 of free delivery credit with no minimum purchase for your first seven days when you download the Postmates app. Anything you need, anytime you need it, Postmate it. So there have been murmurs, right? Like, we all kind of heard Kyrie wanted out of Cleveland, right? They're always like, you always hear these little murmurs around the league, Banyan. And like, oh, I guess that was true. And there's probably plenty of the murmurs we hear that aren't true and some can be reported and some you can't. So the word on Durant out of Oklahoma City was that he was on an endless search for happiness and he just couldn't be happy. That's That was kind of the story. Out of, if you listen to people out of OKC, they'd also talk about that he blew in the wind, right? That if he was in OKC, he was kind of one. Then he'd go to Nike, he was somebody else. Okay, that turned out like as time's gone on, like we've seen that, right? That's like undeniable. Like, oh, you got told that. You watched Durant. He's proven that to be totally true. The other story on Durant was that he they won the title. He was the best player in the world, and no one recognized him for it. And he was miserable. That he didn't know what to do. That everything he'd ever wanted to do, win a title, go to the Warriors, be the best player, beat LeBron, obsessed with beating LeBron, and yet what happened the next day, everyone's talking about how the Warriors are the best team, but boy, LeBron's the best player in the world, even though Durant had totally outplayed him. And that, that was the downfall to the Warriors. It was a weird story. It seemed like it didn't, vi- it just didn't, you know, like I'd heard it. I'm sure you'd heard it. Draymond just told us it. Draymond just came out and said that that was the case, that that's what happened. That to me is kind of awesome because that means we're getting the documentary while it happens. For sure. I heard that at the time. And I also heard similar things during the following year when they're having that really tough series against Houston. And remember, there was sniping back and forth. What style of basketball are they going to play? Is there jealousy between Kevin and Steph Curry and, and all that stuff? And, you know, that I think gets proven out as well. I mean, the bottom line was Katie's perception of how him beating LeBron uh, did not come to fruition. And I remember being right there. I mean, I think I gave Katie more credit than most with that title, but ultimately like I had to do my top 100 rankings and you, you look at them, you say, well, if those two guys had switched teams, 
uh, in the finals, like what does that final series look like? And you say, well, if LeBron's on the Warriors, that's going to be a sweep. I mean, Katie's not going to be able to, to you know, do anything uh, on the other side, you know, with the talent that LeBron had. You look at the all-around game, LeBron was still functioning at a very high level. So ultimately, when I was doing my player rankings, I still had LeBron over KD at one and two. Um, and Wait, I so agonized you're the over reason? for weeks, if you're, not months. You're the reason why Ben Golliver ruined the Warriors. He made Kevin no. Durant miserable. No, I'm not saying that, but I do think that a lot of people wrote him off without agonizing. And, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I was like, look, I mean, this this wasn't necessarily a fair fight in those finals. You can't just judge it by that head-to-head matchup, which I think is what Kevin uh, really expected um, to, to be how it would go over. I mean, the other thing that we have to keep in mind is we know he really cared about it because he told Lee Jenkins for a Sports Illustrated cover story like five or six years before that happened that he was sick of being second. He, you know, he had been drafted second. Uh, he had, you know, lost in the finals to LeBron in t- 2012. And he just really badly wanted to get over the hump. And that first title wasn't as validating for him as we all thought it would be or as he thought it would be. And I think he mentioned that, too, that summer is like he thought he was going to feel different. He thought he was going to be treated different. I mean, he said that on the record uh, and, and the title just didn't bring him into the type of joy that he expected. So um, that's why his journey continued. You know, he, ultimately, he's still searching. I think we can all agree on that. I hope he does find the happiness that he's looking for. But. Um, you know, I don't think on that particular point that Draymond was speaking out of turn. I think he was just sort of confirming what most of us could agree is fact. So if we did another one of these, who would you want to see it on? Well, if not the Warriors, which is probably the popular answer, I've got a little bit of a curveball for you. What about the Dallas Mavericks? And we're going to do the arc from the 2006 finals where Cuban is just irate and, you know, basically accusing David Stern of every, you know, conspiracies and the foul calls, um, you know, with, with Dwayne Wade in the finals. And then you close the arc with the 2011 Mavericks run, which is just like the ultimate magical run down the stretch of that you know, second half of that season, plus just incredible basketball start to finish throughout the playoffs and spoiling LeBron's, you know, uh, storybook moment in the 2011 finals where he's supposed to win his first title in just kind of epic fashion. I feel like that would be a pretty good documentary because, first of all, if you get Cuban unchained, and maybe you get Cuban some of the same tequila that Jordan's drinking, right, to, to get him a little bit excited. If you get an honest Cuban, you get Dirk Nowitzki, then you bring back guys like Deshaun Stevenson, Sean Marion. They're never afraid to, to speak their mind. Maybe you get a little J.J. Berea in there about what's it like to try to get into LeBron's head during the finals. But you try to just track that arc from the heartbreaking defeat of 2006. Is this ever going to happen again? Is Dirk a choker? Is he a wimp? Is he soft? Is he just not going to ever be able to lead a team to that triumphant moment in the finals where they're basically putting away the big three heat, the most hyped team in years and years and years. And meanwhile, Dirk is being mocked by LeBron and Dwayne Wade, who are kind of coughing in the tunnel, making fun of the fact that he's uh, got a little sickness or a cold you know, during that final series, I just think there's a lot of layers and there's a lot of characters who would like to be able to tell their side of the story. Now, are we going to really get a contrite Dwayne Wade and a contrite LeBron to contribute to this thing? Probably not. So it might be a little bit of a one-sided documentary from Dallas's perspective, but I'd love that movie for sure. So the other one, uh, do we include Mark Cuban's letter explaining why he's zigging while everyone's zagging, which is the only documented uh, on-paper move by a franchise ever to tell us beforehand why they're so wrong about what they're about to do? 
<laughs> sure, bring it all in. I mean, I think that's what I'm saying. It's like, look, you're probably going to have to make a deal with Cuban, sort of like the Jordan last dance deal where he gets to have, you know, some production credit or overseeing the project or whatever. But if we can get a completely honest Mark Cuban just unloading every take about the 2006 and 2011 finals and maybe get him to wax about that famous photo where he's got the Larry O'Brien trophy while he's going to the bathroom in a urinal, you know, he maybe can walk us through his thought process during that moment. I mean, I think there's a lot of layers that could be really good. It's a, it's a promising pitch. All right. So I have a weird one that I would love and I don't know. I don't know the backstory on it. I feel like it's the forgotten team in the history of the NBA and they had a front row seat to everything that ever mattered. And they had a, the signature player that probably is more important to the history of the NBA than he gets credit for and is more important than the two players of the year in some in some ways as important in the player of the, the two players of the era that is are talked about. And that is the Philadelphia 76ers in the 79, 80, 88. Well, I'll walk through it here for you era with Dr. J. So I think Dr. J is underappreciated in his importance in the history of this league from the ABA to the NBA merger to the first kind of flamboyant star to being an African-American star. Like the amount of people in the backyard that wanted to be Dr. J is the same amount of people in the backyard that wanted to be Kobe, right? Just in a different era and a di- you know you didn't have the global aspect of it but he to me like there's something t- tangible to that so you bu- are you buying that part of the story oh 100% i mean the cool factor with dr j is through the roof and then you know the the people he inspired it's not just people in the backyard it's like scotty pippen on the last dance said i wanted to be like dr j right. lebron is like wearing six and he's saying i kind of wanted to be like dr j too i mean the influence is very very deep jordan has held up dr j's high flying exploits and dunks and everything else as kind of a model for him at times too. So yeah, there's no doubt that, uh, you know, a Dr. J, you know, documentary alone would work, but you want to do a team aspect too. So here's why. So if you look at back at those Sixers team, let's start in 79, 80. First of all, Billy Cunningham's the head coach. Who's interesting. Pat Williams is the executive. Who's like the most interesting and has to have a million th- great things on tape from his time. You have Doug Collins on that roster. Who's a great interview. You have Lionel Hollins. Who's a good interview. And you have Dr. D- uh, Daryl, Chocolate Thunder and Daryl Dawkins. So you've got enough guys to talk to. Then look at the run of this 79-80-76er team. They lose in the finals to Magic in 1980 to the Magic Kareem team, and but they beat the Celtics. So the first year of Bird and Magic, the Sixers are the ones who like beat the Celtics in the conference finals and then lose to the Lakers in the finals. What a perspective. They then beat the Milwaukee. The next year they beat the Milwaukee Bucks, who are like one of the greatest teams that never got anywhere. And they lose to the Celtics in seven. Dr. J versus Larry Bird in the 80, legendary 81 series. The next year they beat the Celtics in seven, but lose to the Lakers again. The next year, they actually win it with Moses Malone now added, so you've got another character, and that might be the most underappreciated team of all time. They're 65-17. and 17. They're the fifth-best offense, fifth-best defense. They only lose one playoff game because foe, foe, and foe from Moses Malone, and they miss by one. Like, that run right there is like, I, I don't, there's something to that, and then it all falls apart almost mysteriously when they lose to the New Jersey Nets in the 84 playoffs. And then they kind of make this one gallant effort back 
again, but Dr. J by this time is 34 and it's not quite right. And they, they get beat by the Celtic. They, they beat by the Celtics in the Eastern conference finals. And then they, you know, they kind of peter out, but I don't know. I think that's one of the most interesting. And then Barkley actually comes after that. Like you can actually add Barkley. The back part of the story actually has Charles Barkley as a rookie on the same team as Julius Irving and Moses Malone, which had to be insane. Um, you know, maybe that's maybe that's why that you know that was that team's kind of last gasp. But anyway, I just think that's one of the most interesting teams in the league. I wish David Halberstam had written a book about him when he was still with us, right? Like, that's the team. I wish uh, Terry Pluto had written Loose Balls version two against that team. Like, that's the team to me that's missing in NBA history. No, I'm completely sold. How do we get funding for this project? I mean, that sounds like a ridiculous – I mean, it could be like five hours, I think, from what you've just described. And I've actually heard a few Barkley stories from that era about, like, what it was like to be that young. And he paints himself as a little bit naive and not very in shape and having a lot to learn and needing – sort of the big brother elements that that team already had to kind of like teach him about the NBA life. Um, I think we could probably get Barkley for an hour alone just on his little tail end experience. And of course, you've got plenty of material before he even got there. The other one that happens in that era, and Jordan alludes to this in one of the things, is I think the 76ers and the Celtics play like seven regular season games against each other. <laughs> yeah. Well, they were throwing fists and, and then punches, right? I mean, there was a lot of bad blood between them even before you got to the bad boys era. Um, you know, those guys probably started it off more than anyone. Well, you have the Dr. J. Larry Bird fight, right? Right. Yeah, so this is a little bit before my time, but I definitely remember seeing those uh, you know, those those fist fights on YouTube on loop regularly. I mean, I'm sure that's one that sort of like Isaiah Matt, uh, Isaiah versus Michael. I'll bet you if you really got those guys to sit down and, and walk through those old fights, there's probably still a lot of uh, burning tension on, on both sides. He's Ben Golliver of the Washington Post. There's actually some news out there that we got to talk about as well. Some good things heading our direction. And also his buddy Mike Pina did a great piece over at SB Nation. Uh, his last dance of brilliance for a little while. And it was as good a piece as anyone's done about Titleist. And we'll touch on that if we have a second. Today's show is brought to you by Blinkist. I was the, just the other day, I was actually doing what's called skinning. Ben Golliver, do you have any idea what skinning is? No clue. So skinning is you put skins on the bottom of your skis, you've, your, hit, your heel is not attached, and you hike up the mountain so that you can like mm. ski down because all the resorts are closed. And I was with my 17-year-old son, who at this point is basically a world-class athlete. And um, so we were together for about 20 minutes, and we were out for about an hour. Well, I was, it took me an hour and 45. It took him about an hour and 20 to get to where we were going. So at some point along the way, I needed some things in my ears, and I decided, well, what's a better time to use Blinkist? Blinkist is an really unique. It works on your phone, your tablet, your web browser. It takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes so you that you – uh, can read or listen to successful people, business leaders love reading books. I used Blinkist the other day for Daniel Pink's Driven or Drive about what drives employees, what drives people, what gets people uh, to do things. 12 million people are using Blinkist right now. It has massive growing library from self-help, business, health to history. Blinkist has the latest titles from the business list, bestsellers list, as well as classic nonfiction titles. You're also meant to read, but you never had time. Never had time is not a question anymore because Blinkist has got it for you. Go to Blinkist.com slash NBA. Try it for free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-K. 
B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash NBA to start your seven-day free trial. You also get 25% off. Four-hour work week by Tim Ferriss, Sea Stories, My Special Life of Operations by William H. Raven, The Upheaval by Jared Diamond, The Sports Gene by David Epstein. They're all there for you. Or How Champions Think in Sports and in Life by Bob Rotella and Bob Cullen. All there for you at Blinkist.com slash NBA. Free seven days and 25% off your new subscription. Ben Golliver, where are you on the optimism scale of the NBA finishing this season? I'm still fairly low. I know there are some people who might be getting a little bit higher, but I, I think partly my view is colored by the back and forth over opening up these practice facilities uh, in certain areas. Uh, you know, to, to get the NBA in line with the local governments that are reopening or loosening their stay-at-home orders. It seems just like a complicated mess, and you've got a lot of different parties who are sort of pushing one way or pushing the other. Obviously, some teams are saying, hey, let's be more cautious. We don't need to rush into this. Others are saying, look, we don't want our players to be able to go to a 24-hour fitness rather than just go to the team's practice facility, which will be, you know, private and safer and a more secure situation. But Ultimately, just trying to get these players through the door of practice facilities has been really challenging because you've got some, uh, you know, health and safety ramifications in terms of how do you make sure these guys are going to be safe and socially distanced within that facility. You've got potential legal ramifications to consider in terms of what happens if somebody winds up contracting the virus while they're practicing in one of these gyms. And then you also have a competitive balance issue where there's teams who are saying, wait a minute, it's not fair that certain teams are going to be able to open their practice facilities and we aren't going to be. And so right now, I guess the plan is that they're, they're going to try to at least reopen some uh, gyms here, you know, by May 8th or May 9th. But to me, I think that all of those complications just trying to work out so that players can have the opportunity to get into a gym, it just kind of underscores how difficult it would be logistically uh, if you're really trying to have a safe environment to play like a bubble playoffs, for example, where you've got hundreds of people who are going to need to be tested regularly, who are going to need to be quarantined away from everyone else. I understand there's some chatter. Maybe you could do it at Disney World. And obviously, you know, Disney and ESPN and the NBA have, uh, you know, a lot of ties there. Uh, but I just think that, you know, look at this practice facility back and forth and realize that that's a relatively small problem compared to this idea of trying to hold a playoffs for the rest of the season here at any point over the next couple of months. All right, so I'm exactly in the opposite spot. And I actually think what's driving this conversation is where we live. So you're in the midst of California where, right, it's still exploding. Everything's been on lockdown. And I'm in Utah where my county locked down. And as of this moment, we have still yet to have anyone pass away. We've only had 32 hospitalizations in my county. And Salt Lake County, which has over, a, I think, 1.4 million, has had 28 deaths and 223 hospitalizations. I think there's a huge impact of, like, where what your prism you're looking at it through. So I get where you're – my point on that is I get where you're coming from. Here's my take. I don't think – 2021 is starting until late December. Would you agree with me on that? 
Um, I think it's very possible. I mean, I haven't really done the timeline thing because I've been trying to stick to what the official story is, and so far there is no official story. All so, right, so there is uh, but I, I think 100%. they have the ability to delay it as far as they want. Okay, sure. 100%. So I agree with you. There's nothing official in anything I'm saying. I got no knowledge. Ben's got better sources than I do. I'm using deductive Rene Descartes logic. Nice reference. Huh? I might be right, might be wrong, but nobody will check it. Um, but I think he was deductive <laughs> reasoning. Um, so Let's just play play with me on my theory here for a second. Let's say the NBA season opens December 18th or so. They get a week of games in, then they have a Christmas celebration. I think the most important thing of the league, in my opinion, is the 2020-2021 season. If that's the case, training camp opens November 30th, the Monday after Thanksgiving. To me, that means they don't have to finish the playoffs till September 28th. And I thought it was interesting the other night. Woj retracted his report that they have to be finished by Labor Day. He's like, ah, I'm here. That's not true. Uh, and I, I can't imagine that. So now I think you can get to his latest late September, which to me means you don't actually have to start playing until the middle of July. And if that's the case, then I think they can get this in. I think they can probably get it in sooner than that. And I think they're even being even more optimistic I think there's a chance they can get the Vegas part of the thing in, playoffs start there, and maybe even some sort of home crowd environment, maybe not fully 19,911 or whatever your arena holds, but some sort of home crowd for the conference finals and the finals when you're suddenly only trying to move four teams. I'm that optimistic. Wow. Well, I love it. Um, you know, I, I want to believe, I guess part of the, the challenge that I have is, is what you're mentioning, the differences between market to market, because I think ultimately like some of this is going to be determined by the weakest link, right? Like it has to be safe to move your teams from wherever they might be and move your players from wherever they might be to a safer than average environment and also have the ability to equip them with all the health stuff that they're going to need to have in that particular environment. So that means you're going to have to be able to have access to tens of thousands of tests um, without compromising the local medical uh, uh, facilities there. You're going to be able to have, you know, have to have people who can administer the test and potentially react if there's some sort of a crisis moment. Um, and I think that in some places across the country, that's just completely impossible because they're still, you know, really um, in the midst of, of uh, you know, fighting this pandemic. I mean, the other thing that I that I kind of question here, too, is this idea that if the benchmarks are we're waiting for the case counts to significantly decrease nationally, if we're waiting there for there to be a potential vaccine, if we're waiting for you know widespread testing to come, those things could happen by July for sure. But I don't think that we've seen substantial progress in that direction quite yet. Um, you know, and I actually think that by this point, I was expecting like the curve to be a little bit flatter than it is. I was expecting, uh, you know, the, the death count to not be above 60,000 already when they're kind of ahead of uh, some projections that were slated to have that number be reached in August. So I think that, you know, ultimately, like Adam Silver has always said, we're going to be determining this by the data rather than the date. I don't know if the data has conformed to the most optimistic scenarios quite yet. It's not to say that it couldn't. I'm just not quite uh, qu not quite there yet. Let me say the one other thing I like about what both baseball and uh, the NBA are talking about. The idea of the Phoenix or the Vegas Walt Disney, whatever, you know, whatever, which one, Disney probably works better because it's the sponsor. Um, 
whichever of those models they use, the, the, the bubble idea, what I think is unique about the bubble idea for both leagues is that it can expand out and come back in. In other words, if you're baseball and it suddenly feels like you can start playing games and then it goes wrong, you can actually go back to the bubble. The NBA would be a little different, but I think that that gives both of them some freedom, and I think that's what's a, that those are good models for both of them. The, the key to all of it, in my mind, Ben, we don't know, and I think it's a fascinating discussion, is what they do if another player ever tests positive, because it's going to happen. And to some extent, most of the players, I'm, not, I'm ignoring the idea that there's a 74-year-old assistant coach on a staff somewhere. The players I'm talking about, they're such elite athletes. The data shows that they're not the type that has very significant symptoms, right? Like, and so it's an interesting concept of like, they're probably not that much more, at least at this point of our knowledge, that much more directly impacted by coronavirus than they are by the flu. Like there hasn't, there, there's some, but at their age, maybe not. And so for years we've had the flu running around and we actually have rewarded players who play through it. So like, I think it's a really fascinating concept of what we do when the next player tests positive and what the league policies are going to be about that. Is it you quarantine that player for 14 days? Are you quarantining everybody in contact with them? Are you just testing everyone in contact with them? That's the hurdle to me that has to be figured out. For sure. It's a big logistical hurdle. There is one other reason to be optimistic, and this could be the best reason yet. Are you ready for it? Uh, the I, player, ha- I have one. We'll see what you think. The players are about to actually feel the hit in their pocketbook for the first time here pretty soon, right? The, the May 15th paycheck in a couple of weeks is going to be 25% down. And as a lot of people around the country are finding out, whether if they've lost their jobs or if they've been forced to take a 20% pay cut or whatever it might be, you know, a lot of people are going always... through this. Your, your life changes, right? Your motivation changes, your priority lists change. And I think for the players, this idea that, hey, we can go get the, you know, our normal paycheck back if we're able to find a way to play this safely, that is going to be a motivating factor that doesn't exist until that first paycheck that looks different hits. Uh, I'll give one that I think many of our NBA listeners won't like a lot. Um, and I'm usually with them on this. Um, I actually think the fact that the federal government wants the sports to play is going to push, is going to have a big impact. Oh, interesting. I mean, it's very clear that Trump's crew wants him to play, right? Like, I had another call yesterday with 22 sports leaders. Like, they view that as a very significant sign that the society is back to normal. Right. And, I mean, I don't think any leader from the NBA is going to publicly contradict that stance. But I, it does feel like, at least from Adam Silver's conference call a couple of weeks ago, that he was had a very different approach. You know, the whole idea of data, not the date. Um, to me, it's sort of like contradicting this notion of, oh, we're going to reopen by Easter. It's like almost like, you know, directly contradictory. So it's going to be a real tap dance. And I don't envy those guys because you could have your own philosophy on how you want to do it. But if you're getting regular pressure from the federal government, that it will be a factor kind of no matter what, you know, whether it changes your policy or not it's going to be, you know, taken into discussion on a regular basis. He's Ben Golliver. You can read him in the Washington Post. You can get a newsletter sent to your email address. 
uh, every week as well. It's super good. Go to Ben Golliver on Twitter. Hits his pinned tweet. You can sign up for that newsletter there. I'm David Locke. You can follow me at, at Locked On Sports. Fabulous episode. I don't know if you've caught it already, Ben, but Chad Ford and Fran Frischella got together for the big board, uh, Chad Ford's NBA big board, and did international prospects, and he's together again with John Hollinger on another re- redraft. So tell your smart device to play podcast Chad Ford's NBA big board now.